There's a day coming. A day that was fixed in time before time itself. A day when all men will stand before Christ to give an account of their lives. And on that day, there will be no more debates about who Jesus really was. There will be no more arguments about whether or not what he taught was actually true. And there will be no time left for excuses about why we didn't live the life he created us to live. On that day, there will only be you and him. And a reckoning for what you did with the life he gave you. Which is what makes every single day before that day so profoundly important. 20th century Scottish theologian William Barclay once said, There are two great days in a person's life. The day we're born and the day we discover why. There's a lot of truth in that statement, and yet the sad reality is the fact that most people reject the life they were meant to live for Christ for a different kind of life. Barclay put it this way. He said, the tragedy of life and of the world is not that men do not know God. The tragedy is that knowing him, they still insist on going their own way. You see, even as Christians, we can choose to live a life that is very different than the one God designed and intended for us to live. And so rather than follow God's plan for our lives, often we choose instead a life that we think we can control, one we think we can predict, one that we think is best for us. And yet, listen, if you ask anyone who is 70, if their life turned out like they thought it would when they were 20, you'll find out very quickly that most of what we experience in this life is actually outside of our control. That it is impossible to predict the direction your life will ultimately take. And that between you and the God who created you, you're probably not the one most qualified to determine what is actually best for your life. So why do so many of us choose to live a life that is so much less than the one God intended for us to live? Well, in part, it's because we don't believe we can live up to that life. Whether it's a lack of faith or a lack of confidence or a lack of understanding or ability, we don't believe we can live the life that deep down I think most of us know we were born to live. And so first of all, I just want to clear something up today with us right now. Listen, if you don't believe you have the faith or the confidence or the understanding or the ability you need to live the life that you know God created you to live, then you would be correct. Because you don't. Because the life he created you to live, even with all of the faith you can muster on your own, even with all of the natural talent and understanding and ability that you possess with all of the human resources this world has to offer, the life God created you to live is so far out of reach, no human being can attain it. Which is precisely why, when we're born again, God puts something inside of us that is neither natural nor human. The Apostle Peter explained it to the crowd who gathered in Jerusalem during Pentecost when something clearly otherworldly was happening. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. 
In other words, you cannot live the life that God created you to live by natural means. Therefore, he's putting something inside of you that is not natural. It is supernatural. The very spirit of Christ himself, and only by that spirit will you be able to live the life you were made to live. But that means learning to wholly rely on something otherworldly. Something inside of you and yet beyond your control. Something that will lead you into and enable you to accomplish what would otherwise be utterly impossible. It's living a life that is not only spirit-empowered, but spirit-dependent. Which is, uh, by the way, the part we don't really care for. Because nobody really has a problem with receiving power or guidance from the Holy Spirit. It's the part where we have to completely rely on that power and guidance every single day. That's the part we tend to resist. So as we go through life, we believe in Jesus while we exercise a certain amount of autonomy over his spirit within us. Because while believing in him doesn't really cost us anything, actually relying on the supernatural guidance and power of his spirit for every single moment of our daily lives, well, that'll cost you everything. And make no mistake, that is the price of admission for the disciple of Christ who actually chooses to pursue the life you were created for. You understand, we're not talking about salvation. That's a free gift. No, we're talking about people who are already saved who then decide to actually live as God designed them to, which may be far more rare than we realize. Because living that way is an ongoing daily submission to the supernatural guidance and power of the Spirit at work within you, and it comes with both great rewards and at a great cost to you personally. At times, it will utterly wreck your plans. It will humiliate every ounce of pride left in you. And listen, it will satisfy your soul in ways you never imagined possible. And it happens to be the only way to carry out God's perfect will for your life. Listen, there is no other way. You may think you're answering the call of God on your life by working the plan that seems to clearly make the most sense to you at this point in your life based on your natural abilities and even your best inclinations toward God. But look, if that plan is not radically dependent upon the supernatural guidance and power of the Holy Spirit just to make each step along the way possible, then you may not actually be living the life He created you to live. It's exactly what his disciples were being confronted with in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the gospel according to Mark where these followers of Jesus were continually being confronted with the reality that apart from the supernatural work of Christ in their lives they couldn't get through one day at least not one day of the life that Jesus was actually calling them to live and the truth is neither can we as we'll see as we pick the story back up where we left off last time. So let's go there and read it together. Mark chapter 6, we'll begin with verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. 
When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when he had found out, they said, Five and, uh, and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate of the loaves were five thousand men. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll remember that earlier in the chapter, Jesus sent out the disciples for the first time to do the work that he'd been teaching them to do, to preach the good news of the gospel, to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And so at the beginning of the story today, they've just come back from that first missionary assignment, which is what Mark is referencing when he says the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that uh, they had done and taught. And of course, Mark refers to them as apostles here instead of the usual disciples because they've just come back from being sent out by Jesus, which is what the word apostle means. It's literally translated from the ancient Greek as a messenger or he that is sent. And so Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And he means with him. And then Mark comments, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. There's actually a fascinating subplot going on here, which we're going to come back to in a few minutes. But for now, Jesus is saying to his disciples, Come away with me to a desolate place far from all these people where we can rest and meet together. Just as a side note, the wilderness has always been the preferred place where God meets with his people. He met with Moses at the burning bush in the wilderness in Exodus 3. He led his people out of Egypt and met with them in the wilderness, Exodus 19. He met with David in the wilderness, Psalm 63. He met with John the Baptist in the wilderness, Matthew 3. He met with the apostle Paul in the wilderness, Galatians 1. And he not only ministered to Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew 4, but that is where Jesus would often go to pray and meet with the Father, as Luke points out, that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray, Luke 5, 16. Some translations actually say often. In fact, I uh, believe the NIV says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So why the wilderness? Why is that where God so often wants to meet with his people? That's because that's where he has our undivided attention. And so look, when your life gets to the point where you're so busy that you don't have time to stop and fellowship with the God who created you, that is when he will often call you out into a desolate place. In fact, it may or may not be a, a physical wilderness, but it will always be a desolate place, a quiet place. And I'm telling you so very often it will be a very lonely place in your life. Why? So that he can have your attention. Because he loves you. And he wants to meet with you. In fact, he loves you so much that he will intentionally lead you into deeply lonely places in your life solely because he desires to have fellowship with you. 
And so the disciples have been consumed by the work of the ministry, and they're excited about all that's happening, and yet Jesus sees not only the success in all of their busy doing, but he also sees the danger in it for good reason, as we're going to see later. And so he calls them away to a desolate place to rest and meet with him, except these massive crowds are having none of it. In fact, they have, they have plans for Jesus, which again, we're going to see in the next part of the story. And so they literally run along the shoreline as Jesus and his disciples are trying to retreat from the crowds. And so they're sailing along the coastline of the Sea of Galilee. Most likely they ended up uh, in the hill country north of Capernaum, just west of Bethsaida, if you're looking at the map. And of course, uh, Jesus has compassion on these lost and hurting people as they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he begins to teach them as he always did. The proclamation of the gospel was always his first priority. And so he teaches them all day until evening when the disciples quite understandably say to Jesus, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus replies with, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? We know from uh, Matthew 20, verse 2, that a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer or an agricultural worker at the time, which means 200 denarii, depending on how many days a week you worked, would have been somewhere between uh, eight months to a year's worth of income. And so, with a note of sarcasm, the disciples point out that what Jesus is telling them to do is impossible. In fact, even if they had that much money with them, the population of Bethsaida, the nearest town, was only between two to 3,000 people. And yet this crowd consisted of 5,000 men. And listen, uh, although there are places in Scripture where the word men means mankind, this is not one of them. Mark uses the Greek word anyar, it's gender specific. In other words, this particular word for men specifically refers to males. And then when you couple that with the fact that Matthew in his own account of this story says those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, Matthew 14, 21, we can safely estimate the size of the crowd at more like 15 or probably 20,000 people. And so even if the disciples had the money, there wasn't enough bread in all of Bethsaida, a town of two to 3,000, to even begin to feed the 15 or 20,000 hungry people who were gathered before them. And so Jesus has them divide up into groups of hundreds and fifties, just as Moses did with the Israelites when God miraculously provided for them in the wilderness. And is also, uh, by the way, how the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, describe Israel as being assembled in the desert in the last days just before the end of this age. And so there's a heavy dose of foreshadowing here as Jesus organizes the people. It's a foreshadowing of the Last Supper. And so he takes the five loaves and the, the two fish, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb I'm referring to in Revelation. So he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven and he says a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, which the early church uh, always recognized as also a foreshadowing of the Last Supper with Jesus, which we're going to be remembering today, of course, as both of those meals contain the same sequence of Jesus taking bread, then blessing it, then breaking it, then giving it to the disciples. And then Mark says they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full 
of broken pieces and of the fish. And so this is a tremendous foreshadowing of the Last Supper with Jesus and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which according to both uh, ancient rabbinical writings, the Talmud and the Midrash, by the way, there was a Jewish regulation in both which stipulated that any bread that fell to the ground during a meal must be gathered up since bread was seen as a gift from God. And so the Jews who at the time would carry these small uh, wicker baskets as a part of their daily wardrobe to, to hold odds and ends, they would go around after a meal with those baskets and they would gather up the scraps of bread that had fallen to the ground. And that's what was happening here. And of course, there's just enough to feed the disciples as well when all was said and done. So Jesus didn't just provide for the people and the disciples. He supernaturally provided exactly what was needed, exactly when it was needed, with zero lack and zero waste. It was no more and it was no less than what the situation called for. Listen, using only what the disciples had and their faithful obedience to his command. And of course, uh, Jesus could have simply waved his hand if he'd wanted to and made the bread and fish appear in front of all 20,000 of those people, but he didn't. Notice he chose instead to provide this miracle using nothing more than the meager resources the disciples had and a significant effort on their part of distributing that food, which clearly was no small task given the size of this crowd. So why did Jesus do it that way? Well, because he was teaching them a powerful lesson about his supernatural provision. You see, there are times in every one of our lives when the disparity between what we have and what we need is so great that the idea of one satisfying the other is absolutely impossible without supernatural provision. Yet as much as we tend to to pray in those situations in our lives for God to provide for us, by way of some outside source or some uh, unseen windfall. Most of the time he meets the need by using what we already have and he does it through our own faithful effort in obedience to his word, just as he did uh, with the disciples here. In other words, sometimes when we pray for God to provide for a need that we have, we, we kind of want to sit back and see what he does. But listen, the majority of the time that's not how it works because that's not how he works. What he does more often than not to provide for our impossible needs supernaturally is to require us to take what we already have and then apply it to that need first, as inadequate as it may be. And then, as we're obedient to do what he's told us to do, then he supernaturally provides just the right amount to make up the difference at just the right time seen it over and over and over again in my own life. But again, our tendency is to do exactly what the disciples did. They focused on what they didn't have. Jesus was focused on what they did have. And so where the disciples saw nothing but impossibilities, Jesus, looking at the exact same resources and the exact same circumstances, saw nothing but possibilities. And listen, if you're facing something impossibly difficult today, uh, look, I get it. It's, it's so easy to look at what you don't have and become discouraged, which is precisely why Jesus did what he did here, to help you understand exactly what he is able to do with what you already have, no matter how inadequate it may seem to be to you. See, the truth is, whatever you have right now, 
in the hands of God, it is enough to do exactly what Christ has called you to do. No more, no less. Well, yeah, but Pastor Rob, you don't understand what I'm facing in my life right now. Well, maybe I don't. But I do know that Moses was facing the most powerful army on earth, hell-bent on his destruction, and they were breathing down his neck when he and two million Jews came to the impassable Red Sea. Moses had nowhere left to run. He was out of options, and he was out of time. These were impossible circumstances, if there have ever been any. Moses was facing certain death, and the only resource he had to work with was a wooden stick. A staff in his hand. But look, that's all that God needed to supernaturally provide for Moses and the Israelites in their impossible circumstances. So he tells Moses what to do with that wooden stick. And as Moses was faithful to do what he could with what he had, God showed up and supernaturally did the rest. And the sea was parted until Moses and every last Jew was delivered. I may not know what you're facing today. But I know that Samson was facing a thousand angry Philistines who had tied him up and wanted nothing more on this earth than to see him dead. And yet with nothing more than the jawbone of a donkey, the Spirit of God overwhelmed Samson and with supernatural strength, he broke those ropes that bound him, he picked up that jawbone and he killed every last man. You're right. I don't know what you're facing. But I know that Joshua was facing the most heavily fortified city in all of Canaan. While the enemy troops looked down on him from atop these massive walls. And yet with nothing more than a few trumpets and a shout. As Joshua did exactly what God told him to do with what he had. The supernatural power of God knocked the walls of Jericho down flat. And Joshua took the city. I have no idea what you're up against today, but I know that Gideon was up against 100,000 enemy soldiers who had decimated his own people year after year after year, and yet with only a few torches, some clay jars, and 300 men, after doing exactly what God told him to do with what he had, God showed up in supernatural force leading Gideon to soundly defeat 100,000 of the most well-trained, well-armed, and heavily experienced fighting men on the planet at that time. Yeah, I don't know what you're going to overcome, the obstacles you're facing. I don't know how you're going to overcome those obstacles, but I know that David, as a boy, was facing a giant obstacle of epic proportions, so terrifying that the entire Israelite army cowered in fear before Goliath, and yet with nothing more than five smooth stones, David, in obedience to the word of God, did what he could with what he had, and the Spirit of God was with him as he walked onto that battlefield with supernatural courage and a handful of rocks, and with nothing more, he planted that giant in the dust and then cut off his head. I don't know how God's going to provide for your need today, but I know that those 12 disciples, with nothing more than five loaves of bread and two fish, supernaturally provided food for 20,000 people that day, simply because Jesus told them they could. Yeah, I may not know what you're facing today. And I don't know what you have to work with, but I do know that whatever it is, in the hands of God, 
It is enough. It is enough in the hands of a supernatural God. So look, whatever you're facing, you just take whatever you have. And then you do whatever God tells you to do with it. And then you let him take care of the rest. That's how he provides for his people supernaturally. And that's what we're all going to have to answer for when we stand before him on that day. What did I do with what he gave me? Let's keep reading. Verses 45 through 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out for all they saw, uh, for they all saw him and were terrified. That word ghost in the Greek uh, means demon. It was often used to refer to a demon as well. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. If you look at the map of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Capernaum is on the north western side of the lake with Bethsaida on the northeastern side of the lake and in between the lake comes to a bit of a point and so when Mark says that Jesus made the disciples immediately get in the boat and go to the other side they were just sailing across to the other side of that northern point or the corner of the lake so it's not a long journey at least it shouldn't have been and yet Jesus doesn't go with them he dismisses the people and then he promptly hikes up a mountain by himself to pray, which is odd because he doesn't take the disciples with him, even though that was the entire reason they came to this desolate place to begin with. And so this is where there's a bit of a story within the story or a subplot, if you will, as the makings of an underground revolutionary uprising were well underway with Jesus and his disciples as the focus or the center of this subversive uh, militant plot that was forming in order to try and free the Jews from their Roman oppressors. You see, rural Galilee was a major stronghold for the zealot movement, which is referenced in Acts uh, 5.37, by the way, among other places. And we know that from uh, the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who wrote extensively about the Jewish resistance movement in his book entitled uh, The Jewish War, that the zealot movement or resistance movement was founded in AD 6 by a man named Judas the Galilean, not the same Judas that was with Jesus, a man from Gamala uh, in the city in the hills. It was a city in the hills just east of uh, Bethsaida. His two grandsons, uh, Manahem and Eleazar, both died in the battle for Masada in the early centuries of the first century. And although the Galilean resistance movement actually dates back well before Judas the Galilean, it was under this man's leadership from Gamala that it really began to build some steam. And as a result, Galilee had gained quite a reputation at the time for being a hotbed of resistance activity. In fact, Josephus himself commanded the forces of Galilee in A.D. 66 and 67 against Vespasian. And out of that experience, he wrote of the valiant resistance of the Galilean fighters against the Roman invasion. And so uh, Galilee, and specifically this part of Galilee where Jesus and his disciples were, being an eyeshot of Gamala, was the tip of the spear of the freedom movement 
against the Romans. And so with all of that in mind, when you read this part of the story in the original ancient Greek language and then put it into context along with other writings using the same language, the picture actually becomes much clearer. Back in verse 34, when Mark says that the people were like sheep without a shepherd, the shepherd in sheep saying was actually a common figure of speech in antiquity that was predominantly used in a military context. Meaning in this case, the people appeared to Peter, who was sharing this story with Mark, who later wrote it down, it appeared to be, they appeared to be an army without a general, okay? And then the statement, verse 31, that there were many people coming and going, again, in the original Greek, actually suggests a bit of a clandestine movement of military planners making preparations for war. And then the phrase that describes the people who got there ahead of them in verse 33 infers the presence of a populist, really a populist political movement forming ahead of Jesus' arrival. And so these people are busy making their plans. And of course, all of these suspicions are confirmed when you read the same account of this uh, event, the same event in John's Gospel, where right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, John says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, John 6:15. So this is where everything begins to come into view because there was a strong resistance movement already in Galilee. Then Jesus comes along and starts performing these powerful miracles like people had never seen before. He commands the weather. He casts out demons. He heals people everywhere he goes. And then to top it off, he just miraculously fed a group of people the size of an army with just five loaves of flatbread and two salted fish. Sends, it sends this resistance movement over the edge because as far as they're concerned, Jesus is the military leader they have been dreaming about. And so just as they're about to force him into a military leadership role as their king, he sends the disciples off by themselves. Why? Probably because they were getting caught up in all of the military and political fervor of the moment. So then he retreats off by himself to pray. And so all of that is just really backstory to give you a proper sense of the context for why Jesus sends the people in one direction, his disciples in another direction, and then he goes off by himself. This is a reset for everyone. And so after praying all night, Jesus sees the disciples in the fourth watch of the night, which was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He sees them making headway painfully, Mark says, against the wind, which I believe was by design. And remember, they were just sailing a very short distance, and yet they've been fighting against the wind all night. They're basically stuck out on the lake at this point, which I think is exactly what Jesus wanted, because if these disciples were indeed caught up in the military fervor of the crowds, the last thing they needed was to quickly get to Bethsaida, where most of the people were, and therefore where the disciples would have surely been caught up once again in the frenzy of the crowd who were frothing at the mouth to make Jesus their new commander and his disciples, of course, his inner circle. But Jesus wants to take time to pray. So he simply keeps the disciples occupied all night in their boat, stuck out on the lake in a windstorm while Jesus takes all the time that he needs to pray. And then when he's good and ready, he walks out on the water to meet them. We've already seen him command the wind and waves, right? Mark says he meant to pass by them, not meaning to pass by them to the other shore and leave them out there, but to pass by them so that they would be certain they saw him. 
Why did he want them to see him walking on the water? To help them understand that he was no mere military leader, that he was, in fact, the Christ, which is why he says to them, take heart, it is I, ego emi. It's the Greek phrase, ego emi. It's literally translated as I am. It is the exact same phrase that God used to identify himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14, where he says, I am who I am. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Yet there's so much going on for these disciples who are at this point exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, after the day and night they've had. They haven't quite figured it out yet. As Mark says, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So what they needed at this point was not more supernatural provision. They had a boat. They certainly had the skills to sail it. These were professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Their stomachs were full. They didn't need supernatural provision at this point. What they needed was a supernatural revelation of who Jesus was in their lives because they weren't getting it. So Jesus tells them to cross over the Sea of Galilee in a boat, what should have been a particularly simple task for these men to sail across a small corner of the lake, right? Of, of all the things Jesus called his disciples to do in their lifetimes, crossing one end of the Sea of Galilee, especially for a bunch of professional fishermen, was nothing. This was an otherwise mundane, routine task, and yet what should have taken them a relatively short amount of time was taking them all night, and they still weren't making headway. In fact, as we'll see in the next section of the story, they ultimately land at Gennesaret, which is nowhere near Bethsaida, which tells you how far off course the winds have taken them before Jesus climbs aboard. And again, I believe this was all by design for Jesus to have an opportunity to supernaturally reveal himself to them while he had their full attention because back on the shore, they were allowing Jesus' voice to become drowned out by all of the competing voices, all of the competing motivations. And listen, I know that we tend to look a bit harder for Jesus at work in our own lives in the midst of those monumental tasks, right? Those big undertakings, those times of desperation, which is why you have to understand when you're following Christ, especially when times are good, when the going is easy, when all of your needs are met, that is precisely when the competing voices become the loudest. Think about it. When you're in a desperate situation, you're far more apt to press into Jesus. But when your belly is full and all the needs are met and you're well provided for, that's when it's easy for us to drift off course, to get distracted and forget who it is you're actually serving. And, and look, uh, Jesus won't violate your will, but he will most certainly allow you to drift off course to the point of spiritual exhaustion and even desperation. Why? So that he can reveal himself to you in a deeper way. And so listen, maybe you're not facing something truly difficult in your life right now. Maybe at this point in your life, everything is good. Your needs are met. You're well provided for. Listen, that's great as long as you don't allow yourself in that process to drift off course. And if you're not sure about that, all you have to do is pay attention to where you are in relation to where he's called you to be. 
right? If Jesus has called you to Bethsaida and yet you're currently somewhere down around Gennesaret, well then it may be time for a supernatural revelation of exactly who Christ is in your life in order to put your life back on course. To remind you of who it is that you serve because the times in life when it is the easiest for us to forget that and drift off course, I'm telling you, is when everything is going well, when everything is good in our life, when we are well provided for. That's typically when we drift spiritually. So what life has Christ called you to? And remember, we're all going to answer for this one day. What we've done with what he's given us. So ask yourself honestly, where am I right now in my life in relation to where he's called me to be? And look, if you're not even in the vicinity of where you're supposed to be, and believe me, I've been there, then maybe you've drifted off course. And again, he will let you drift. He will let you drift to the point that you are desperate for a new revelation of Christ in your life. In fact, I believe if the disciples had been on track with Jesus that day, and we know they weren't because Mark just told us that they not only didn't understand the miracle, but their hearts were hardened, right? Because Jesus had the opportunity of a lifetime to become a king, and his disciples, their inner circle, and instead he sends them off away from him and away from the people alone to drift on the sea at night, and their hearts were hardened. Otherwise, I believe they would have made it to Bethsaida straight away. Now listen to me, because this is one of the most dangerous places in the world for a Christian to be. When everything is going your way, and you start drifting away from Jesus to the point that your heart begins to harden. That is a far more dangerous place for you to be than in the middle of a life-threatening storm, because at least in the storm, we know who to cry out to. So he lets them drift further and further into frustration, further into exhaustion, further into desperation. When Mark says they were making headway painfully, the Greek word he uses there literally means torment. See, Jesus allowed them to drift to the point of torment until they desperately needed a new revelation of who he was. And of course, they still didn't get it, but they were getting very close as the story unfolds. And listen, he will do the exact same thing with you if that's what it takes to get you back on course with him. Let's finish the story for today then, verse 53 to the end of the chapter. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So finally, they land at Gennesaret, and immediately the crowds return, bringing the sick, the lost, the broken, and as many as touched even the fringe of his garment were made well. There's no telling how many hundreds or thousands, even tens of thousands of people were healed by Jesus and his disciples. In fact, that phrase, were made well, in verse 56, that describes the people who touched Jesus' garment is the ancient Greek word sozo, which also is translated often as saved. And when you consider the fact that the woman with the issue of blood back in chapter 5 was made well by her faith, according to Jesus, as she touched the fringe of his garment, it is highly likely that there was far more than 
just physical healing going on in the lives of these people as Jesus taught them the truth before he healed them. What an amazing ministry to stand before hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of people who are coming to you because they're lost and broken and desperate to be saved, desperate to be provided for, desperate to be healed, desperate to know Jesus. Even as the authorities are plotting to kill you, clearly neither Jesus nor his disciples could have carried out this mission without supernatural power. And neither can we, at least not if we're going to actually live the life that he's designed for us to live, right? You can certainly live a good moral life. Yes, you, you can live a conservatively religious life. You can live a culturally Christian life without supernatural power. But that is not the life he created you to live. No, the life he created you for... You have absolutely no hope of living without his power surging through you because that life requires supernatural provision and supernatural revelation and supernatural power to lead the hundreds and thousands and maybe even the tens of thousands of people that he wants you to reach in your lifetime for Christ. You can't do it in your own strength. Every time the disciples tried, they drifted away from Jesus and they failed miserably. Listen, we must learn to rely on something more than our natural ability, on something more than our natural talent, on something more than our natural understanding. We must learn to rely on the supernatural power of the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. Okay? The world is already full of people who are naturally gifted in just about every way imaginable. If you're relying on your natural abilities to live an extraordinary life for Christ, then you will always fall short of what could have been, what should have been. Because as Christians, we have something greater available to us. Something that isn't available anywhere else. And it's so much greater than anything we could ever naturally produce on our own. Listen, we are fools if we go through life not tapping into the supernatural power of Christ. Because the day is coming. The day is coming when we won't be able to talk anymore about what we plan to do. No, on that day, all that will be left is you and him and whatever you did with whatever he gave you. Let's pray.